And that's a pain we all feel, right? Especially nowadays. This That is a very timely discussion where we want to be able to enjoy the art of people who make good art. But at the same time, the people that make good art aren't necessarily good people. And welcome back to this, the final episode of season three of No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. Welcome, everybody. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you for tuning in all season long to this awesome podcast about theater's best scripts. It feels <laughs> like just the other week that we were talking about the third Lynn Nottage play that we covered at the yes. beginning of the season. I think we did intimate apparel this season. And now we're on our last play of the season. It's wild. But between then and now, 22 scripts we've talked about. Yeah, yeah, my goodness, it does. It, you're absolutely right. It does not feel that long ago that we started the season. We're going to be finding another Lynn Nottage play soon, so don't worry, season four is coming. You will hear another Lynn Nottage play within our tradition of starting seasons with Lynn Nottage. That is uh, right, but- yeah. We'll be back in 2020. Right away in January, season four will hit the internet, and we will join you again with our regular old tradition of uh, starting with the Lynn Nottage, but because Lynn Nottage is amazing, and she deserves the laud of being the lead playwright for each season of No Script. Whatever laud yeah. she feels for that. <laughs> we appreciate you feeling any laud at all, Lynn Nottage. <laughs> Lynn Nottage, if you know that this podcast podcast exists and that we talk about one of your scripts as the first script for every season just know that it's in laud right (laughs) and now that we've used laud more times than anyone in the past decade let's jump into the conversation around this script of the week this last script of our season which is with or without by jeffrey sweet i have been waiting through three seasons to talk about this play (laughs) <laughs> I I don't know how many of y'all out there have read it or read it because we advertised that we were going to be talking about it or know Jeffrey Sweet. This is one of my favorite plays ever. And that's a crazy statement because there's is. so many good plays out there. And I, I honestly, I tried it. I was talking with my wife about this the other night. I'm not 100% able to articulate every reason why I love this play so much. But this is one of my favorite plays. Ha! That's fascinating. I can't wait to find out why. (laughs) (laughs) But before we hop into that conversation, we would like to ask everybody to give us a Christmas gift. Uh, The holiday (laughs) break is upon us, so you won't be receiving new script episodes every week. But in the meantime, you can go back and listen to our old episodes, and hopefully that will stir in you the holiday joy to give to us the gift of your patronage. Go on over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. That's the easiest way to find it. There you can become a patron of the show. That'll set you up to uh, automatically give a gift every month a monetary gift and those levels come at $1 a month is the lowest one and and they kind of go up from there. Once you become a patron, you'll have access to patron-only posts. We know we have some folks over there that are enjoying those posts and we're really, really grateful for everybody who's already supported the show. If you choose to support the show monthly, you're doing a heck of a lot for us to be able to continue to make this project that we love to do but is not free. So please head on over to patreon.com slash noscriptpod Help us do what we love and hopefully what you love too. Our listenership grows every week, so we know that we've got folks out there that are listening to these conversations and hopefully enjoying what we do. And we're asking for your support this holiday season. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. We will see you over there. Now back to the script. <laughs> I'll give you the last I hardly one. ever get to say that. Um, so- <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> now, uh, <laughs> so we're going to jump into some context around With or Without, which is the play by Jeffrey Sweet that we are talking about today. This play has kind of a fun and interesting story. It was born out of a desire for uh, that Sweet had to kind of make a full-length play out of 
uh, improv sessions. Uh, he kind of famously, uh, it's, it's cover, right? Was the, the play that he wrote before that was based out of an improv session. Um, that's right. Yeah. And actually you and I did cover together in, we in did. our undergrad. Yep, yep, and uh, but it's a one act play, so he kind of wanted to up the game and uh, and say, well, let's let's see if I can write one that's a full length play out of these sessions. So he uh, went and did uh, what's the name of the house? He 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 improved uh, in association with some of his Second City friends in Chicago, and uh, went and had these improv sessions, and out of those improv sessions came the play with or without, which uh, was then produced in. 1994 for the first time in Chicago and uh oh no I'm sorry at the Frog Pond Theater in Upper J New York the second play was produced in Chicago and there's actually a pretty fine audio recording of that play yeah Jacob that's right yeah those of us who are or those of you that are regular listeners to no script know that every once in a while I pitch uh latw.org LA Theater Works and they sell audio recordings of plays some of them they produced some of them other people have produced there is a really really high quality audio recording of with and without really great production that was produced by the Victory Gardens Theater in association with WFMT Chicago's Theater on the Air that is the production that you can buy over at latw.org really fun to listen to performances are really strong I don't feel like the play loses a ton of its real strength and gripping dialogue and, and and moving characters in just transmitting through audio form as plays sometimes do. This one I feel like really, really strong. So head on over there if you want to listen to this play. Highly recommend that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so yeah, this this kind of a fun story of this play. Uh, I, I found the name of the improv group, Alice's Force, Fourth Floor is the name of the theater um, in Chicago. And actually that original production troupe, for those of you who know uh, theater plays in general, especially around the 90s when they were being written, uh, and in that original production, Beth Linick, Lynx was uh, one of the improvers and eventually actors of the show. And she writes under the pen name of Arlene Hutton, which you'll notice from... Plays like Last Train to Nibrock, if you've read that play, which is also an excellent play. I know so, that some of our listeners know and love Last Train to Nibrock. So that's a fun little tidbit for you. She was not only one of the people that helped improv the creation of With and Without, but she was in the original cast. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, it's a great play. I'm, we're going to get into like some of the... Uh, mechanics of why outside of this, the plot itself, it's a great play. So I'll save some of my comments about that for later. But this play continued to be produced. The last one that I have in my book being produced was uh, 2006. But I know for sure there's been more production since the publication of the book that I have. So, yeah. Great so script. With and Without is a four-person play. Uh, two men, two women. The they're, they're two couples, sort of. The married couple, Mark and Shelley, are supposed to be on vacation with Jill and Russ. And Russ has not shown up for their vacation. The setting is a lake home. Uh, in, in this version of the script I have that says the time is today. Uh, we've talked a little bit before about uh, how annoying it is sort of when playwrights put the time is today in their scripts because it's not. It's, you know, whenever the, the play was written. So this is a, a late 90s play at a lake home. They've rented the lake home for vacation. Mark and Shelley are married. Russ does not show up who's Jill's husband. So Jill is upset about that she they through the discovery of some phone trickery they figure out that russ has not only not shown up but heard the messages and still decided not to show jill assumes he's having an affair she hints that she's kind of assumed she he's had an affair in the past so uh, they're understand jill is understandably upset mark and shelly meanwhile are sort of grappling with wanting to support jill through the pain of a. Uh, thinking her partner is cheating on her, thinking her marriage is over. But also, we're planning to be on vacation this week. And so are feeling a little bit of the tension of wanting to have a vacation in the midst of supporting their friend. That gets us through two scenes of the play. The final two scenes, uh, things start to move along a little bit because Jill goes to supposedly get a video. Again, that shows that this is a late 90s play. A video <laughs> to watch. And instead, she comes back with a guy. Uh, a one-night stand that she met in the local area. They're all from just, quote, the city. And they're out at the lake house. So she just goes to the lake community and she picks up a guy at a bar and brings him back. This guy's name is Glenn. Jill and Glenn have a conversation for a while where some things are revealed, like the fact that Glenn one time robbed a bank. Some <laughs> wild stuff like that comes up. 
Eventually, Mark interrupts them, and Glenn goes off to use the bathroom so that Mark can have a conversation with Jill. It, Mark's uh, conversation is basically, this is a bad idea, you shouldn't do it. Jill says, you can't control my behavior. In the midst of that argument, Glenn drives away. Jill wants to chase after him, discovers that Mark has taken her keys, socks Mark in the eye, steals her keys back, and chases after Glenn. That's scene three. Scene four is the next morning. Jill returns from having successfully chased down Glenn and slept with him, and she just returns to have some kind of confrontations with Shelly about the fact that she punched Shelly's husband, Mark. Um, But the real crux of it comes that Russ, Jill's husband, is in fact coming that day. Uh, Mark is very concerned about the fact that he and Shelly are probably going to be asked to lie about the fact that Jill had this one night stand the night before when Russ shows up. That conflict brings us to the end of the play. The only other important plot note that carries through, I think, and we'll discover more in our conversation probably, but it is important to know that Jill and Mark used to be a couple. Uh, Mark is now married to Shelly. I'm just saying the names over and over so that if you haven't read the play, you can catch on. Um, Mark is now married to Shelly, but he and Jill used to be a couple. And now they're all friends in a kind of bizarre friendship that Mark actually comments on it being a little bizarre. Yeah, from a a, a, a Shelly-motivated viewpoint, at least, it seems like Shelly reached out to Jill and wanted to stay friends with her more than Mark did. So that that kind of the uh the the <laughs> difference between them and their relationship with Jill is 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 brought out frequently throughout the play. One of the things that I love so much about this play, just to start the gushing now. I'll just hop yeah, in go to it. gushing. <laughs> One of the things that I so love about this play is in the middle of a plot which does carry beginning to end and is interesting and involves some really incredible character choices that are having to be made across the way. In the middle of that plot, these characters also have sort of pseudo-philosophical discussions, the kind of pseudo-philosophical discussions that you have with your friends that that aren't supposed to be incredibly profound, I don't think. These aren't philosophers. They're just people. And they're saying the kind of stuff that you think sometimes, but you don't say out loud because you know that it's not really true, but it's worth expressing in a group of friends. I think a really good example of that is when they start talking about Walt Disney. Yeah, yeah. So that that, that is a great example. In general, like these... These scenes do happen within the context of really good friends. You get that sense from where they go with them because they, they they rabbit trail down to this conversation about Walt Disney in the context of Jill talking about how um, <laughs> I, is is the beat that she wants people wants to maintain illusion around people first, or do they get there by way of Walt Disney? <laughs> they get there by way of Walt Disney. So, yes, yes. Uh, I forget exactly the specific conversation pieces that lead him here, but Mark makes a quip where he basically says, uh, Disney, and I'm just going to quote, so there's a little bit of cursing, Disney was an ass man, is what he says. And Jill gets a little bit upset about this and says, why would you tell me that about Walt Disney? And she goes on what I say, this sort of pseudo-philosophical Uh, idea, which is that she sort of wishes there was a circle of protection around certain celebrities so that you just don't have to hear about the bad stuff that they do because you want to still be able to enjoy their art. Yeah. Yep. And and what's interesting is you get... You're right that you wouldn't necessarily put that out there in most conversations. Like, these are not conversations that you have in mixed company, for instance. Um, but but in a, in a group of friends, they kind of come up. Where the tension then comes is different characters' level of acceptability with uh, being this freelance about things or being so uptight about things. Mostly, Mark is the uptight one to uh, Jill's kind of a little bit looser uh, understanding of, of their conversation. <laughs> right, and and I will say that Mark is a dream role of mine. I don't want to <laughs> act very many parts. I'm mostly a director. I don't do a ton of acting. But of the few roles that I really would like to play, I'd like to play Mark. And if you're just hearing this conversation, you have no other interaction with the play, my guess is at the end of our hour together, you're going to say, why does Jacob want to play Mark? Because just for the purposes of conversation, <laughs> he, he's probably not going to come off very well. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> and it's just in the play, I think scene to scene, he's a little more fun of a character. You see the journey, but just talking about him, he's probably not going to come off very well. And you're right. He's a little more uptight. And so when this conversation comes out, something that at the core of it, I don't think any of these characters really believe, even Jill, that that celebrities should be sort of excused or we shouldn't have to hear about the bad actions that they do because we want to appreciate their art. But she proposes this pseudo-philosophical idea, I think, as a just a way to express a, a grievance or a pain. And that's a pain we all feel, right? Especially nowadays. This That is a very timely discussion where we want to be able to enjoy the art of people who make good art. But at the same time, the people that make good art aren't necessarily good people. There's no qualification that you have to be a good person to make good things. And so right. tension starts to exist where it becomes hard to enjoy some of the high quality things that people have created for us when we know the terrible things that some of those people have done. Yeah, she brings up a bunch of great examples, kind of kind of a previous century examples, but still they're all good. It's like, you know, Errol Flynn was actually a spy for 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 the Nazis and Charlie Chaplin had his past and stuff like that. So she brings up all these different people who entered who can make her laugh. And and that is good. She she's she's a character who throughout this play needs a laugh and kind of goes to different sources to try to find that laughter. Um, so, so, so that, that, that's, that struggle for her is very, um, very acute in the moments of this play. What's interesting is the tension there also spills into the tension of friend, the friendships as well, that in, in the way that these sorts of conversations happen with friends, eventually one or the other of them crosses a line. And then that, that's where a lot of the, the plot tension or the functional tension of this play happens is when the characters cross lines for each other. Right. So in this conversation, Mark, who's on the opposite side of Jill, and again, the point is not really the idea. I'm not sure that Jeff Sweet was intending to comment on whether or not we should know about the bad things celebrity do. I think he right. was writing a very human conversation that people would have amongst their group of friends where they feel safe enough to test ideas or air grievances. And that ultimately ends up impacting their friendship because Jill is saying, I don't want to know about the bad stuff celebrities do. And Mark, who's getting increasingly frustrated, he's kind of a stickler for stuff like this, ends up saying, oh, really? Oh, you don't want to know about the bad stuff people are doing? Then why are you calling all of Russ's friends to try to figure out whether he's having an affair or not? Why are you doing that if you don't want to know? Right. That crosses a line. (laughs) Yep. But what's also interesting is how quickly this friend group bounces back from those those lines. I think that's a... a, uh, you know, we don't spend scenes and scenes uh, with these people uh, holding on to this grudge then. It's like a, there, there's one exception that I'm sure we'll get to. We spend two scenes uh, living in, in one exception to this rule. But in general, um, they, they within the same page, at least in my script, will say, sorry, that crossed the line. There might be a little bit of back and forth. But then they're right off again to another lively conversation around things. So I at least get the feeling that these friends despite some of their tension trust each other a lot and are and are willing to forgive a lot to remain in friendship with each other right i think you're right and those apologies serve a purpose and so all throughout especially the earlier part of the play when somebody makes a joke too far either shelly about mark or mark about jill or jill about mark or, or however it works when somebody says something one too much they're very willing to apologize and by and large the group is very willing to forgive and that's the sign of a very healthy friendship right and that serves i think for jeff sweet to build for us a picture of what is hopefully a very healthy friendship and also to emphasize the moments at which that doesn't happen to emphasize that the these characters feel so wronged or they feel so justified about what they do that that apology does not come and that's when the friendship really starts to go head to head it's no longer just i said something i knew i shouldn't have which happens a lot now it's i said something i feel is right and you said something you feel is right it hurt both of us and we're no longer willing to just apologize and move along now we've reached a crossroads yeah 
Yeah, and 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 there's a couple notable crossroads in this play. There's let's see, let's so we we have the one there. Um, we have the uh, the the one in the the end of the play, which is uh, or near the end of the play, at the end of scene three at least, where uh, there's a confrontation between Jill and Mark. What's the earlier one again? I'm spacing on it at the moment. There's like a where the line gets crossed <laughs> uh, sp- they, they have they have a lively conversation in, in the beginning of the play but over and over throughout they 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 find these moments these cross crossroads where they're where they're uh trying to kind of grapple with discomfortability with each other and come out on the other side and so when you see these friendships you know that you see how they navigate crossing a line knowing that they've crossed a line and pulling back the apologies and forgiveness it then sets up this moment that you're talking about at the end of Act Three to be uh, r- really important, really different. Something something new has occurred now. And as I mentioned in the plot summary, what it is is that Jill has brought this guy home. He, the guy has fled. I uh, think I think we're supposed to assume because he overheard some of Mark and Jill's conversation, and. He, so he takes off. Jill wants to go after him, but Mark has taken her keys out of her purse. Right. Now, this is obviously a line cross, right? I, I can't think of a friend that I have that I would feel right about taking their keys out of their purse to stop yeah. them from doing something. And that, right. that obviously crosses a line. But it's a line that Mark feels so justified about doing that there's no longer the the sense of, I'm sorry I did that. That was wrong. Here you go. You were right. Can we move on? N- now Mark is sticking to it. And Jill mm-hmm. responds by... Responds violently. <laughs> um, and she, she, she decks him, knocks him flat, takes the keys, and, and, and runs off. Now... Now, in the next scene, she comes back and is apologetic. Um, and I think the apology comes from her in that instance. But I don't think Mark ever apologizes for going. The, the, I think you're right. There are very few instances where I would feel completely justified in taking someone's keys away. Um, so so I, 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 think, I think you get to see. It's kind of nice. You get to see from multiple angles. I think most of the characters have to apologize for something at some point, And you get to see their different reactions based on the severity of what they've done. And, and- and really, I mean, Jill does come back and she does say, I'm sorry, I hit you. But but it's always followed by, but I think I was justified right. or something <laughs> like that, right? And the other thing I think is that because Jill the next morning, when her head is cool, is able to say the apology, but Mark is not, I think that crossroads then is built up even further, especially for Mark, whom is... I don't know. We said stickler a couple of times, stiff. He's got this sense of, you know, in the best version of Mark, maybe this sort of deep sense of morality that even Mm -hmm. he's accused by the other two women a couple of times of sort of being on his own high hill and, uh, you know, how lonely it must be up there. In the worst version of Mark, it's, it's more like moral superiority. And the needle yeah. waves back and forth between those two throughout. Yeah, he's a very rational person. He wants ideas to be proven to him on a rational, logical level. Um, he picks apart other people's ideas um, and 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 qualifies things within their statements. Um, so so he is he is occasionally a character that's hard to get on board with. <laughs> but but I think he I think let's 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 I'll, I'll do one more attempt to try to redeem him a little bit. He seems to be really earnest in those things. What whatever whatever the end results of his beliefs are, he seems to be kind of holding them from a position of he believes they're they're like morally correct. That that might be a good way to to sum it up is that he he kind of holds the ground at 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 the expense of the opinions of the people around him sometimes. <laughs> Well, I I want to highlight a place in which maybe we see how Mark's own internal selfishness, let's call it, or self-interest maybe is better, conflicts with his moral superiority. And they end up both aligning, but you wonder which place it comes from. So after Jill has learned that Russ is no longer coming, believes her marriage is falling apart, she starts to make some quips sort of to the effect of all men are terrible, right? And Shelly, Mark's wife, gets sort of on board with that. She She's involved in the jokes to some degree. So in scene two, Mark basically says, 
you know, this is not fair. Why am I taking the brunt of these jokes when the the, the complaint is really with men in general and actually really with Russ? Uh, you know, you're she's taking Jill is taking out her anger on Russ by making quips about men in general. And because I happen to be a man, I'm taking the brunt of those quips is his complaint. There is a moment when he starts to make this complaint when Shelley says, oh, you think we're picking on you? And Mark, in a very, if you spend any time in this play, you'll learn a very classically Mark moment, says, no, <laughs> it's about the fact that men in general have been treated badly. They're the only class that you can effectively make fun of anymore. Right. But I'm not so sure that Shelley was wrong when she highlighted the complaint of, ultimately, you're just pissed off because we're picking on you. Yeah. And that's one of those moments where what is Mark really after at that moment? Is he upset because he's being picked on and he personally, his own self-interest is being violated? Or is he upset of this larger moral principle? Being Mark, he attaches everything to a larger moral principle. But is that really the root of his complaint or his his uh, uncomfortability, his, his being upset? Yeah, he seems just uncomfortable throughout this play. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you can imagine I mean, why. Your yeah, ex-girlfriend has just been dumped on vacation with you and your current wife. I mean, yeah. he's in an uncomfortable <laughs> place. <laughs> Definitely. There there are lots of uh, circumstances that that have that have made Mark uncomfortable, but <laughs> but I think a lot of I think you're right on in saying that that much of his uh, resistance to both Jill and Shelley throughout this play stems from that uncomfortability, from the feeling that he's been put into a situation that he's not comfortable with and that he's having to uh, represent things that he's not on board with either, maybe is the the, the uh, more altruistic uh, or generous way to phrase it for him. But uh, Or he claims he's being forced to represent things, but at his core, he knows that ultimately it is sort of about him. Because that's the other <laughs> complexity of this play, as I mentioned at the end of the plot summary, is that he and Jill used to date. So she's just been dumped, cheated on, probably her marriage is over by Russ, and the only other guy around is her ex-boyfriend who decided to marry someone else. Yeah. So there is also the sense of, well, are these quips, is Jill's frustration truly with all men, or... And that's why Mark is getting picked on. Or is Mark getting picked on because it's Jill, and she has a complaint against him as well? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and he he admits, I think, to Shelley that he still carries guilt from that breakup because he broke up with her. So I, you're right on with that, too. He's, he's, he's carrying a lot of both perceived guilt, but probably also correctly perceived <laughs> um, uh, sh- shame being put towards him about those things. And he's sort of worried about other feelings, too, right? I think one of the more genius moments of this play where Jeff Sweet not just not only does he force his characters into a sort of pseudo philosophical discussion but at this time I think he's also making a pseudo philosophical point and it's Mark and Shelley and so those are the married couple and they're talking about the fact that Mark is really uncomfortable because Jill is so upset And he used to be in love with this person or used to care greatly about this person. And now she's his friend. And so he wants to comfort her. But he's concerned that if he begins to comfort her, that is going to stir in him old feelings, old patterns. And Shelley, one of the ways that she avoids being vulnerable is by making jokes, by, by, by making sort of crude, directed at Mark jokes, uh, Shelley basically turns around and says, what, are you afraid if you give her a hug, you're going to get hard? And Mark is all (laughs) flustered and embarrassed by that. But I think that that conversation still maintains some of its poignance, even despite the fact that Shelley tries to take all poignancy out of it because she doesn't like the conversation, I think. Yeah. Um, That's my perception of (laughs) Shelley. But Mark is a little bit concerned, I think, about this sense that there are old patterns for he and Jill, that if he gets too involved in Jill's emotional well-being, that might send him backwards somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, it's a fascinating uh, uh, character of Shelley in that, because Shelley just doesn't seem to be worried about that at all. 
Um, at least, at least from the comments that she's making, she's, you know, kind of teasing him about it, holding it lightly. Um, and, and, and eventually says in the play and in, in one of the more poignant moments of the play, and it's kind of surprises you because it comes out of a bunch of teasing and this back and forth that they're always having, but she pretty much says that, yeah, we are happily married. Like I'm happily married to you. And it's beautiful, and it's 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 surprising. It catches you off guard. It catches Mark off guard. It almost he almost seems like surprised that that she is willing to say it. But it sounds like Shelley is pretty confident in their relationship. So to have Mark be so uncomfortable <laughs> with Jill around, with 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 Shelley just seeming not to be worried about it, is an is an interesting dynamic for this play. Right. I think there in this play there might be a a tendency to, by a director, by a dramaturg, by actors, to make Shelley into sort of the perfect wife. Hmm. You know, she's she's totally fine with the fact that Mark's ex-girlfriend is still around. In fact, she teases him about the fact that maybe he still pictures her naked and teases him about the fact that she's still around and that flusters him and she's always got a good sense of humor and she doesn't seem to care much about anything in a positive way but still cares deeply about him. And that tendency might be a positive one because it makes the end, the very final beat of the play and Shelley's decision in that last moment maybe even more impactful by her perceived perfection. But I also think it might be the incorrect way to go. And actually, if I made a criticism of the awesome recorded version of this play that you can buy at latw.org. They should sponsor us. I've like yeah, I've advertised them so well. <laughs> we talk about them all the time. Uh, if I made one criticism of that particular production, I'm not sure that the actress that played Shelley really accessed what I think might be a deeper level, which is I think it's possible that Shelley uses this humor to avoid having the conversations that she's uncomfortable having. It's not just that she doesn't care. It's that the aloof uh sarcasm is a, is maybe a defense mechanism to being vulnerable in those moments. Yeah, I think that I think that would be a pretty interesting way to take it too because I agree that if you just do like the 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 perfect wife stereotype, I don't think that hits the fullness of Shelley. I don't think super sarcastic, uber confident just like you know, shut up, you're wrong is is the right way either. It's something in the middle. And I think addressing that that defense mechanism is really interesting because we really only see that defense mechanism drop a couple times in the play, and 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 so if you if you choose that as one of her defining characteristic, it, it makes those moments even more poignant. Um, oftentimes they happen in the one-on-one scene she has. Is there's a couple times with Mark, but I think you also get a couple times with Jill, especially later on in the play. So so it makes it adds more worth to those moments if you're operating with this assumption that yeah she doesn't really have the desire to engage with conflict in a completely emotionally open way. Right, she's the most cool and collected of the three. Mark is easy to fluster, easy to embarrass, easy to get up on a high horse. Jill is very easy to anger, which even if you say, well, that's not a character flaw, she's just really upset because her marriage is over, which is true and fair. She's still, at least in the terms of this time that we spend with her in the play, is not a very cool and collected person, again, perhaps rightly. Yeah. So Jill, so Shelley, I mean, ends up being the voice of reason more often than not. And you actually see both Mark and Jill try to find ways under the armor. In to one point, um, so this is after Jill has returned from her one night stand after she socked Mark. That that net, that final scene begins the next morning with Jill basically saying, "Well, how upset is Mark?" And Shelly says, "He's pretty upset." And she says, "Well, what do I have to do to get on his good side?" She lists a couple things, and then she makes the joke of a blowjob. And Shelly says, yeah. "I don't think that would do it." And then in what can only be an effort to antagonize Shelly, Jill says. Well, that always used to work. <laughs> right. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, yeah. you cannot say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the times that we see Shelly break a little bit, too. Like, she actually harangues, or not harangues, she doesn't let up on Jill in that scene. She's like, you can't come here and do that. 
Right, so, yes. <laughs> and, and you can't like joke about the fact that you've hit my husband and think that I'm going to, you know, just unilaterally have fun with you uh, as a result of it. So like that that's that's one of the scenes where that that veneer breaks. She really brings it to Shelley to the point where once Mark returns to that scene, both Shelley and Jill say, "Look, Shelley really laid into me about this." <laughs> Yeah, she's kind of the peace or the, the peacemaker, not necessarily the peacekeeper, but uh yeah, yeah. So then so then what about Jill? We've we've kind of talked about Jill from other perspectives so far. We got we got four characters in this play. Let's talk about Jill real quick. Um she she's in a in a just a, a you know, a, a crux of a moment. <laughs> um she's you know, grappling with the reality that her husband hasn't showed up. She's probably had this suspicion slash uh data for a long time that he's 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 not showing up to things that he's he's uh out cheating in some capacity because she has she has short hands already she definitely so. has a long-standing suspicion that this is occurring yeah and it i'm not sure how fair it is exactly we never meet russ we only get other characters perceptions especially shelly's perception and there's some indication that jill thinks shelly and russ may have had a relationship in the past Although that's one of those things that Shelley just stonewalls about. Uh, yeah. Uses humor and sort of a quick flash temper to turn the conversation away from any discussion about Russ. But her perception is that um, Russ says, well, I made a mistake about this one night. So I'm not really sure how fair Jill's longstanding suspicion is. I, I don't know. But she definitely has a longstanding belief that Russ has been cheating on her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and so that, that, I mean, that's, she, she, I feel like that's the, sadly, maybe, maybe you can, maybe you can uh, supply some extra information to this. That seems to be the defining thing for her character. That's the defining uh, push for her character through this is how is she handling this, this kind of first public display of this infidelity with her group of friends at the expectation of being on vacation, and all her actions seem to be kind of cued from that. What do you think of that statement? I think Jill is one of the characters for whom this is really two plays. Because you're right, the first half of the play is largely Jill's reaction to Russ not showing her thinking her marriage is over. There's some some long-standing stuff about her and Mark. And maybe one of the things we should talk about as we get closer to the end of our time is who the play is really about him and, and what story we really should be following the most closely that might be a candidate. Um, but then once the act, the, uh, I'm not, there's only four scenes. There's not really acts, but once the, the second half of the play comes around, what you might call act two, she brings a guy home and then suddenly it's a new play for her. She's made a move forward in that recovery. I'll say one of the things that is odd to me about Jill is why in the world does Jill want to hang out with Mark and Shelley? You can kind <laughs> of see why Shelley is willing to allow Jill to be friends with the two of them, even despite Mark and Jill's former romantic history. And you can kind of see why Mark would want to. They were dating for a long time and were together and living together, thought they were going to get married for a while. So clearly there's some mutual, you know, there's similar people enough that they would be friends. I can more easily, perhaps weirdly, I can more easily understand Mark and Shelley wanting to be friends with Jill than I can Jill wanting to be friends with Mark and Shelley. Mm-hmm. I I agree that like the uh, the motivation on like a on a on an individual level is kind of cloudy in my head. You know, you, you, the the sense is not there that she has uh, or why she would pick them. The, there is one sense, though, that I get from context clues throughout this play that her situation is such that she needs any friend on her side. Um, there's the there's the scenes where she's trying to call people to confirm where Russ is, and she comes back and says, yeah, none of them will say where he is, which makes sense because they're all his friends and they have a loyalty to him. So I don't really blame them for that is kind of how she goes about saying that but that's kind of one context clue that makes me think that you know whatever friend groups she and Russ have formed this one might be the exception this one might be the one that she has history with and despite the fact that it's a complicated history she believes that these two 
would pick her instead of the rest of the friends that seem to be more willing to pick Russ out of these out of in this moment of conflict between them. I think that's pretty astute to cross apply that line about them all being Russ's friends to the reason why she want, might want to be Mark and Shelley's friend. The other thing that is interesting is that Shelley is the one that introduced Russ to Jill. Yeah. And mm-hmm. again, if you're Shelley, why do you want to further involve Mark's <laughs> ex-girlfriend in your continuing life? Right. I, I do they do they really just have such a I mean, does Shelley and Jill really just have so much in common, such a unique bond as, you know, women friends that they that they're willing to overlook everything else? There is some textual clue that that might be the case. Jill, when she's talking to Glenn, says something to the effect of as much as I wanted to hate Shelley, I actually ended up really liking her. And so there might be some of that. But ultimately, by Shelly introducing Jill to Russ, Shelly almost guarantees that that friendship is going to continue because Russ is her friend, which then makes it very interesting to put what you just said into that context as well. Because Jill says, oh, they're all Russ's friends. I think I agree with you, assuming that Mark and Shelly are quote-unquote her friends. But But Shelly was Russ's friend before (laughs) all of this. Yeah. (laughs) And Shelly wants them to stay together at the end of the play. You sort of wonder, again, is this from some sort of deeply altruistic want for Jill and Russ to maintain together? Is it because Shelly is ultimately, quote unquote, on Russ's side? Yeah. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's sometimes very hard to tell, especially because the play's so good. What comes from self-interest? What comes from interest for the other? I mean, it's a complex gray play in some of those areas. And it's just like, it's just a snapshot of these people's lives. So I agree. It's so good because you get to then expound on what you think is happening outside of the very limited view that we get of these characters in this play. I mean, another another option is that they could just have a camaraderie in that they both know each other's husbands pretty well. And so who else could be... Uh, who could be more of a confidant in that way, right? Because people who kind of know what you're talking about, know the in routes of what you're talking about. Right, yeah, and and that comes up throughout. They both make jokes about the husbands that kind of they get together. There's one really great moment where Jill is so frustrated with Mark, and Shelley comes out and says, "What's he doing?" And Jill's and Mark actually says, "Apparently, I'm being too rational." And Shelley says, "Yeah, that's <laughs> annoying. Stop that. Stop it." <laughs> <laughs> so good. Let's talk about the fourth character that we see in this play real quick, and and it can be pretty quick because he's 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 only in it for a little bit. But Glenn is the other character. Glenn is the character that Jill brings back from the the, the bar in town. Is a really cool name that I'm not going to remember off the top of my head, but she brings him back from the the bar in town. Um, and and uh, yeah, they have they have actually a pretty great conversation on the porch of the vacation house that they're at. It's an extended scene. It goes on for a while, and I'm with you. It's great. Mm-hmm. It's great fodder. I, I'll say that if you're an actor out there looking for scenes, this play is full of scenes, especially for men and women. Um, yeah. For like one guy and one gal. There's not a lot of great two gal or two guy scenes. There's more two gal than there are two guy scenes, but uh, lots of really excellent scenes for guys and gals and pulling from some of this conversation between Jill and Glenn is a great way to pull it. I don't know. Jill got stunningly lucky or maybe she was really at that <laughs> bar for a long time waiting for exactly the right person because Glenn is also a divorcee, also struggling to find his way forward in the world after his marriage has fallen apart, also struggling with self-image and self-confidence in the wake of all this, is the kind of person that's okay with the fact that this is a once-and-done kind of a thing, is emotionally mature enough to understand that we can we can you know help each other move forward without needing a further romantic relationship in some ways even maybe even more than Shelley Glenn is like the perfect human for Jill <laughs> in this moment yep <laughs> yeah I agree the moment I mean it's it's a it's a fascinating scene in in watching people get to know each other. Um, and and to discover you know what lines they can agree on, and also just acknowledge the uh, 
acknowledge the state that they're in. They both spend time acknowledging the fact that, you know, we're not we're, we're going to set down rules for what we're going to do as they start to get more physical. They they like right away seem to like set up uh, rules for what's going to happen um, that don't necessarily affect negatively the direction they're heading. <laughs> they just seem to like uh, are able to are able to speak expectations into into the room and then continue their relationship as a result of that. It seems like a really good, really good example of how to meet someone. <laughs> Then and have there's a conversation this with them. revelation, and this is what turns Glenn's character a little bit, I think, that it doesn't for Jill, kind of oddly, and I kind of want to discuss Jill's reaction to this news. As I mentioned in the plot summary, Glenn reveals that he has formerly robbed a bank. Mm-hmm. He was just after the divorce. He was a track coach, and so he had a starter pistol in his pocket. And he was just standing in line at the bank and kind of went crazy for a second. He was, you know, he he says it was partly about money because the the divorce was taking so much money to get through, and it was also because I didn't have control. He's he, again, he's really emotionally mature because he he's had enough self reflection to understand the deeper motivations of what he did. You sort of wonder if Glenn maybe has done some therapy. He's just so emotionally mature and so self-aware he's the kind of person that maybe has talked through some of this with somebody but he robs the bank and then he drives away and as he's driving he he kind of freaks out again oh i can't believe i did that and he finds a police officer and turns himself in so he only got six months but he's a bank robber yeah (laughs) and her reaction is not necessarily a negative one (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she she kind of listens to the story. It's not like a there isn't there is not either a bad boy effect. I don't think I don't think that's what we're meant to infer from her reaction. But she just kind of takes it as it comes and listens to his reasoning, and they move forward after that. I, I want to talk about the Glenn and Jill scene in terms of dramatic structure, and this may turn us to thinking more about the broader scope of the play. Because right smack dab in the middle, there is an extended scene where Mark and Shelley are not on stage. An extended yeah. scene. I mean, it's probably a 20 to 30 minute scene in what's a 90 minute play. Very long. Without Mark and Shelley involved at all. So you get that. But then you also compare it to the fact that the final beats of the play and what you might argue are the climactic decision making moment of the play comes without Jill on the stage. So whose story is this? Yeah. It's a good question. Um it's it's a hard that's a it's a hard question to answer honestly. I think I think if I were to have to make a choice based on my reading of the play, I would argue for Mark and Shelley. But so much of the the motivations of the play stem from Jill. The the beats of the play that move it forward are Jill based. Um, so, I mean, uh, uh, Mark and Mark and Jill have, or I'm sorry, Mark and Shelley have conversations or, around what this is doing to them, what what their relationship is like. Shelley and Jill have the uh, you're threatened by this divorce conversation. Um, but it's a that's a conversation that doesn't go anywhere. I yeah, don't it think kinda it kind of gets ends. again. Shelley maybe stonewalls that conversation a little bit. She says, "Actually, we're pretty secure." And Jill uh-huh. says, "Oh, you're so stinking smug." Yeah, I wonder. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna draw a little bit of a comparison to those those of you who have listened to Dinner with Friends. Our conversation around that. There's a play, Dinner with Friends, by Donna Margillies that is very has some similar beats. Two couple friends are breaking up, and one couple and the couples deal with that those ramifications. What happens in that play is at the end, there's a little bit of hope at the end that maybe the couple that still remains together can find something to hang on to. I wonder if that's not here in this play. Despite the fact that Shelley and Mark or that Shelley has said, yes, we're happily married. I wonder if that last beat, she, she basically serves up a lie for him that he can stomach. Yeah. Let, um, let's set up this lap beat. So yeah, Mark is really concerned 
whether again, whether it's from deeper self-interest or a more moral sense that he claims to have, he's deeply concerned about this idea that he's going to be asked to lie for Jill. And again, there's this dual thing because he says he doesn't want to be forced to lie. But then when he and Shelly are alone, he also says, how can we go on and have a friendship for the rest of our lives knowing this? How can this really continue? How can we get by living the rest of our lives knowing Russ with this? So he he does textually bring up some self-interest as well. He's concerned with the fact that they're going to have to lie to Russ about the fact that Jill had this one-night stand. So, Shelly, after they debate that idea for a while, Shelly says, look, Jill came back this morning and she told me that she didn't sleep with him. She caught up to him. He said he didn't want to do it. It was too much hassle. And so she slept in her car last night instead of coming home because she was so embarrassed. Importantly, she says, what if I tell you? That's true. She poses it as a hypothetical, although the conversation is framed as such that she's providing him this information. Although that might be a little bit of a a question mark is how firmly Mark really believes this lie. But he seems at face value to take the lie. And he says, oh, okay, well, then, uh, you know, I, I can see why she was embarrassed. Then we'll just move on with our lives. There's no need to mention it because she didn't do anything wrong. And so they, they, that's how the play ends. Shelly has mm-hmm. lied for Jill. That's a tough... Man, so Dinner with Friends ends with this moment of hope between, and I'm not going to be able to remember the characters' names, the couple that is still married at the end of the play. One of them might be Glenn. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. I know one I of them I don't want to try yeah. to guess. One of them might be Glenn. That would be weird. But um, <laughs> the couple that's still married at the end of the play are sitting in bed, and that's how that play ends. And they bring up this sort of longstanding pattern that they had been in uh, through some of their more passionate romantic years, and they bring that back, and they discuss how their marriage can move forward. With and without ends in a different direction, which is Shelley lying to cover up, actively lying. Every It's dramatic irony because the whole audience knows she's lying about the fact that Jill didn't sleep with this guy. That's not a positive direction for their marriage to head. Yeah, no. No, I feel like the end of this play kind of leaves us feeling a little bit more unsettled about the the. Both both uh, these two's, uh, both Mark and Shelley's relationship, but also their relationship with Jill and Russ. Like, let's suppose that uh, uh, Russ, Russ says he's going to show up at the end of the play. Russ is coming back. He's going to get to the house. They're going to have a conversation. Let's suppose they work it out. This is going to bubble up again. <laughs> like, you imagine, imagine a play seven years from now, maybe even shorter, like a year or two from now, where all of this is then rehashed, that we all knew all these things at the vacation home when Russ didn't show up. Like, I think that's that's almost definitely going to happen within this friend group if Jill and Russ kind of figure out a way to put their differences aside. So I mentioned earlier that a candidate for what storyline is the, you know, quote unquote, is the play earlier might be this long-standing tension that has existed between Jill and Mark because their previous relationship didn't go anywhere and Mark married someone else. The The problem with that as being one of the maybe the central through line of the play is that if you think about that as the story, ultimately they're saved by deus machina. Sort of, right? (laughs) Shelley intervenes and uh, uh, makes Mark avoid having to choose whether to lie for Jill because he feels guilty about his leaving her in the past or doing what he thinks is right, which is telling Russ that she slept with somebody last night. And so Shelley saves what that confrontation may have been. Mm-hmm. So I think that you're right that it probably has to be Mark and Shelley, but man, that leaves Jill out of the mix, and she's got the <laughs> middle half an hour of the play more or less all to herself. I mean, Glenn's involved, but he's not a character that sticks around. Right, right. Probably, I wonder if we could we could help ourselves out by remembering that the window's open the whole time. Uh, the window above the porch is open the whole time. So though we are not seeing Mark and Shelley observe the conversation, Mark and Mark especially um, overhears the conversation. And everything that she's saying as he listens to her kind of move towards, uh, you know, at, at least having a, a one night stand with this guy very close to the time that she's learned that 
uh, Russ is cheating on her. So maybe th- that dynamic of Mark overhearing it could have some bearing on the overall structure of Mark and Shelley being the main characters throughout this play. There's a running um, moral question or a theme-related question that I think maybe lends itself to this conversation. Both Jill and Mark, separate at separate times throughout the play, bring up this idea that there's a difference between having between making a moral choice to do or not to do something and have and and doing the right or wrong thing in that situation and having someone else take that choice away from you and force you to do the right thing. Um, in Mark brings it up in a more casual way, which I think sets up the more serious version of that moment later on. Mark, Jill accuses Mark of not being a very good liar. Like, uh, he couldn't call Russ and try to figure out what's going on as if he's pretending that Jill hasn't shown up. There's this whole thing that they're trying to do, uh, to try to figure out where Russ is early in the play. And Jill says, Mark couldn't pull that off. He's not a good liar. And Mark says, I'm offended, not because you're saying I'm not a liar, but because you're saying I don't even have the option to be a liar. I don't even have the ability to make that moral choice. I want to have the ability to choose not to be a liar, but I still want to have the ability to do that. That casual version of this conversation sets up later on this deep question of their friendship, which is when Mark takes Jill's keys, he takes away her decision to to make the moral decision of, am I going to sleep with this guy or not? That becomes the more serious version of that same conversation. Mm -hmm. And so... I think that weirdly, although Mark and Jill are the ones that bring up this question in conversation earlier in the play, that decision maybe comes down to Shelley to make. Shelley has the option of allowing Mark to uh, to make a moral decision. Am I going to tell Russ or not? And she decides to take away Mark's ability to choose through a lie. Hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that a lot. That that theme throughout. That's I mean, that's also the that's also the justification Glenn gives for why he robbed the bank. That that theme is a really prevalent one. Like he just wanted to feel like he was in control of something. It felt like all control had been taken from him. Like he had the the ability to make this moral decision, not have it made for him. You're right. Bring Glenn. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So yeah, that that theme is really prevalent. And in the end, we see the. Uh, you know the the power balance. This it doesn't it doesn't come to us. I wonder if our journey is kind of from somewhat health towards unhealth in this play, because <laughs> at the end at the end we that that is the final choice of Shelley is to to deprive someone of the choice to to make a decision. Or or maybe there's a final commentary being made by Jeff Sweet. I don't want to put words in his mouth. This is just a maybe. This is just my reading of it. But maybe there's this idea that. Not every moral choice is healthy to force somebody to make. Mark Mm. is just, I I mean, I'm sorry, but Mark is not capable of making that decision. You know, we talked, uh, when we were talking about Angels in America, we talked about how one character was accused of not being able to handle even the small stuff. So when the big stuff came up, he was just not going to be able to cope. Mark is that kind of person. He gets flustered and embarrassed and morally just shaken by even the most small things, even the most theoretical, basic ideas. And so when this large moral question is put to him, are you going to tell your friend Russ that his wife, Jill, also your friend, cheated on him or not? (laughs) I think Shelley makes this call that he's not not capable of making that decision. This is going to tear him apart. The healthiest thing is not to give Mark this moral decision. And whether Shelley's right about that or not is is the larger question of what Sweet's trying to say. Because I think both Jackson and I agree, that's not a comfortable decision. We're not right. like all on Shelley's side there. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a decision that nonetheless needed to be made in the moment, especially in the context of the the lives that he could kind of wreck if he if or the relationships that he could wreck if he made the choice one way or the other. And that relates to the title, of course, too, right? With and without. At the most basic level, Jill is without her partner, her husband. Mark and Shelley are with, and one of the major worlds of the play is looking at two versions, this sort of happy, supposedly healthy marriage where they're with each other, somebody's marriage who's falling apart. Then Jill is with somebody. 
it goes on like that. But that title might also relate to this theme too, with and without the ability to make moral decisions for yourself. Hmm, is there yeah. is there a time in which being without the ability to make that decision is the healthiest option? And whose whose job is it to govern? Like, that? Who gets to decide that? Right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because it, we're definitely not on Mark's side when he decides that for Jill. Mark is right. definitely the bad guy in that scenario. But mm-hmm. whether or not we're on Shelley's side at the end of the play, I, I mean, it, it's it's uncomfortable. But I also wonder if Mark is really capable of making that decision. Yeah. Is he really capable of deciding whichever way he decides and continuing on with his life? <laughs> I mean, you and, can yeah. imagine if he'd been forced to do one or the other, tell or not tell Russ, whichever way he went, it would eat him up for the rest of his life. Definitely. Yeah. So she kind of said, yeah, she serves up a lie that everyone can live with. In the end, whether or not she can live with it is an, is another play. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that 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 is sadly uh, about uh, as much as time as we have. This is a, a awesome play. Something we didn't talk about at all is the structure of it. You can, for those of you who know improv, you can tell that this play is masterfully rewritten out of improv. It is it is a a play that every once in a while you see the stakes raised and the characters saying yes and to it. Jeffrey um, Sweet is a genius at dialogue, and he, his dialogue writing is on full display here. It is masterful. Mm-hmm. It is wonderful. It is hilarious. It is interesting. And I think it's because it's born out of improv, like you said. The dialogue in cover, the 10-minute the play that Jackson and I did together, is also incredibly good. And, and yeah. both this play and cover came from improv. Mm-hmm. So if you have been in this play, if you've read this play, if you haven't read this play, read this play and then have the conversation with us. Continue it on our uh, social media accounts or on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The username is at NoScriptPodcast. You can find us on all those sites. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to keep having this conversation with you, whether you have, or re- have read it, have been in it, or just enjoyed this conversation and have more to add. Hit us up on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking to you. Absolutely. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. And now that you know where to find it, you can tell other people about it. Tell your friends, share it on your social media. Like we say, our community is growing every episode we release, and we're just amazed by that. But you can help us grow more and more. So please tell other people about it. We will be back in January. This is the beginning of our break. You have reached the final minutes of the final episode of season three. Way to go. But rest assured, season four is coming. It's coming soon. So have a lovely holiday season. We will see you in a month. But until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script, the podcast. We'll see ya. Bye.